In the United States, we have the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996, better known as HIPAA, which allows you to protect and move your health information from one insurance carrier to another. Since the U.S. doesn't have a national health care plan, HIPAA was designed so that patients could receive continuing care as they change plans, doctors, even employers. It did not define, however, the security of the medical devices used. That came in another piece of legislation, the Health Information Technology for Economic and Clinical Health, or HITECH Act of 2009. That was designed to digitize health records in the U.S. to help with HIPAA. So it began to define some of the criteria that electronic medical records and the devices used in creating EDRs would need to have Unfortunately, like HIPAA before it, high-tech was also inadequate and misunderstood for InfoSec needs. For one thing, there was a lot of confusion around updating medical devices to the latest software. After all, once a device had been certified for use by the FDA, it was assumed that it could not be updated. When you have a million-dollar MRI sitting in the next room, you don't want to change anything. That thinking was clearly wrong. Yet, that is why you still see devices operating with Windows 7 in some healthcare offices today. And that's not good. Microsoft stopped supporting Windows 7 in April of 2013. And that means any new vulnerabilities found in Windows 7, well, they're not patched by the software vendor. To correct that and other issues, in late 2022, President Biden signed an omnibus spending bill that included the Protecting and Transforming Cyber Health Care Act of 2022, better known as the Patch Act. What this act does, among other things, is codify into law the basic cybersecurity necessary throughout the lifetime of any given medical device. This is a story of someone who had a direct hand in crafting the Patch Act and why his work with medical devices isn't finished. I'm Robert Fumosi. This is Error Code. I am Josh Corman, Vice President, Cyber Safety Strategy at Clarity. Clarity is helping to lead the safe and resilient convergence of OT and IT and the Internet of Everything, or the XIOT. So let's start with a quick definition of healthcare delivery organizations. I'm sure it's going to come up in our discussion. So an HDO is a health delivery organization. The U.S. has about 7,000 as tracked by government, uh, large, medium, small, and rural, 85% of which are those medium, small, and rural, under 100 employees or so. And they could be a large hospital like you would think of or a clinic, um, but they're canonical definitions. It's not necessarily a sole doctor's office, but um, this is a brick and mortar that you might imagine going to for care. I've known Josh for many years. In fact, he reminded me that we first met while I was still at CNET. Josh has since gone on to serve at the Atlantic Council, a Washington, D.C. think tank, and government agencies such as CISA. Here, I'll let him tell his history. I've always been an idiot altruist that wants to make the world a safer place, but over time it manifested more. So yes, I did take a pause from the private sector to join a nonprofit international policy think tank called the Atlantic Council. Uh, the division was called the Cyber Statecraft Initiative. And just like we have statecraft 
for the NATO and the UN and norms and treaties with other countries as cybersecurity increasingly became a domain of conflict and a marketplace for the, the global economy and for the collision of ideologies and political philosophies. Cyber statecraft was started by Jay Healy, my predecessor, and I took it over to add cyber safety and cyber physical systems risk and sub-state actors to their lexicon. Josh is clearly someone who can walk and chew gum. So concurrent with my Atlantic Council, I also served on a congressional task force for healthcare industry cybersecurity as part of the CISA 2015 law, Cyber Information Sharing Act of 2015, not the agency, which would come later. Uh, and that was called the 405C, depending on who you ask. And we spent about a year and a half looking at uh, risk to the healthcare industry. And we published our report on mother just before Mother's Day weekend, which is when WannaCry took out 40% of healthcare in the UK uh, and did some damage to the US. Here's the BBC interviewing former Home Secretary Amber Rudd. Can you give us the, the figures, as you understand at this stage, about how many hospitals, how many trusts are affected? Well, we understand that 45 have been affected um, out of several hundred, and most of them are being very cautious about this. Some of them are making changes, some of them aren't. Some of them are managing to carry on with their uh, daily work despite these difficulties. But can I also just point out that this, this particular attack, this cyber attack, hasn't been particularly focused on the NHS. It's been a worldwide attack. It's affected 100 countries, different organizations, but it's just in the UK that it's been particularly impacted on our NHS. Uh, what do you know about who might be responsible? Well, we don't know the answer to that yet. Uh, I've spoken to the National Crime Agency who are wo working with the National Cyber Security Centre to find out who might be. Um, it will take a few days. We have to make sure we're very clear about uh, what information we have and we track it down. Uh, I can also say that we're talking to international partners because this is an international attack. So we have good relationships with different countries who've been impacted and we're sharing information to find out how best to address it, how best to end it, but also how to find out who has done it and how to make sure we have the right defenses going forward. And six weeks later, significantly more damage from NotPetya. Here's ABC News. Hospitals outside Pittsburgh in Beaver, Pennsylvania were among the targets where doctors could not access patients' medical records. She called me and said surgery was canceled because the computers were down. Other targets in the U.S. include Merck Pharmaceutical in New Jersey. Even the company that makes Oreo cookies may have been hit, as well as the computers and phones at this Washington law firm, which warned its lawyers as they entered the lobby. You can't read any emails, you can't read any files. Basically, your computer becomes a brick. The attack first surfaced in Ukraine, shutting down everything from grocery stores to ATM machines, power grids, and airports. The thousands of targets all received this ominous message, in English, on their screens. Your files are no longer accessible. Nobody can recover your files without our decryption service. Send $300 worth of Bitcoin. Sometimes if you pay, you get your data back. Sometimes they just take your money and move on. The attack bears great similarities to a computer kidnap and ransom scheme last month that hit British hospitals particularly hard. But that attack, later linked to North Korea, was stopped when cybersecurity experts discovered a kind of kill switch. So that work um, led to what you're about to ask about, by the way. Uh, but, um, and then one more thing, just because my brain works this way, I'm totally arm wrestling you by accident. But 
nearly 10 years ago, I founded a group of volunteer hackers trying to save lives through security research called IamTheCavalry.org. The idea the cavalry isn't coming on issues affecting public safety, human life. So we focus on wherever bits and bytes meet flesh and blood. And uh, that volunteer group became I Am The Cavalry, a personal attestation that uh, we're going to be part of the solution. I want to drill down a bit on Josh's work with I Am The Cavalry. This is significant work and should not be understated by any means. It is a very real and very living organization. We're nearing our 10-year birthday, a decade of volunteerism. Uh, what started as 50 people very quickly turned to a couple hundred and then over a thousand. And I, I think we stopped counting at a few thousand. Uh, and there's missions on any cyber physical systems industry. I think we're best known for our medical work, on medical devices on hospitals, which put me in this these different roles. But, um, but also... Early on, we did automotive cyber safety, high-speed rail, aviation, uh, industrial controls. So a lot of these villages you see are cavalry members starting sector-specific initiatives. Um, some of them form their own nonprofits. Like I'm also on a board for something called the Cyber Med Summit, where we've teamed up with board-certified physicians who grew up as hackers, and we do ER hacking simulations to show the life and death consequences of some of our overdependence on undependable medical. We do tabletop ransomware simulations. And we're doing one in uh, on April 20th in Washington, D.C. with sitting congresspeople uh, and the House and the Senate. So you now we've become an integral partner uh, outside the public-private partnership for good faith, uh, honest broker, tech literacy towards a common good and public good. Um, and it is manifested in different ways under names you've probably seen and just didn't even realize it was cavalry. Uh, so our uh, our members founded the ICS village, the auto hacking village, the aerospace village. Uh, we helped run the sandbox at RSA. We started a separate C3 for the CyberMed Summit. Um, so, uh, And then ultimately, some of us went directly into the federal government for that emergency service, walking the talk on day-to-day -day basis. Um, but yeah, since it's a volunteer avocation, most people have day jobs and they advance the cause from whatever industry and perch they're in with whatever time they can contribute. But uh, what we are discussing is how does the mission change a decade later? Um, the world's in a different place now. 10 years ago, there was no CISA, only four years old now. Uh, 10 years ago, we were talking about things being flammable. Now we can see that they're on fire. Tax on water, on food supply, on oil and gas, on schools, on municipalities, on hospitals with demonstrable impact to public safety, human life with actual losses of life from ransom attacks. So we're in a very different place now. And each year, especially this one, I'm asking, uh, should the how should the mission change uh, and transform a decade after we started it? So, yes, it exists. The question is, uh, how can we best help? And what are the biggest gaps where if something's missing in the world, we could put it there. So Josh put together a collection of hackers in I Am The Cavalry and started to do some noticeable work. So that Cavalry Trust led to my being asked to be the Atlantic Council, my being asked to be on the Congressional Task Force for Healthcare and New Cybersecurity. And then many years later, as the planet faced a pandemic, um, CISA, uh, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, called upon me to come serve my country as an emergency hiring authority to design and implement what became the CISA COVID task force to keep the hospitals in the country safe, their supply chains, and efforts around uh, Operation Warp Speed to develop and distribute vaccines for the novel coronavirus. So that was uh, 
very unique opportunity to uh to put a hacker philosopher inside a federal bureaucracy but um uh it was a pretty dangerous and exogenous set of circumstances and uh when you get asked to do something like that you say yes and then there's Hackers on the Hill, an opportunity for security leaders such as Josh to come to the U.S. Capitol and meet with sitting representatives of our government. For example, uh, people don't realize that's a cavalry thing, <laughs> but we do every year. We bring uh, a larger and larger group of hackers for their very first uh, public policy briefing with staffers or committees in the House and the Senate on different committees' jurisdiction. And this year, we even innovated further. We didn't advertise in advance because it was closed, but we did the first hackers in the White House later that day when we brought about 50, uh, a subset into uh, the White House executive buildings to have a series of meetings with NSC, ON, uh, ONCD, OMB. Um, it's It's pretty stunning you know, how far this idiot altruist instinct has matriculated uh, to now where we are a vital input into things like the White House National Cybersecurity Strategy. I suppose it's no surprise, but working with Washington, D.C. takes a particular type of skill. Yeah, I've never had a negative opinion. I know some of the hacker community has. Um, if you've worked with these public policymakers in the House or Senate, they have to be experts on water pollution, on quantum crypto, on geopolitical issues, on everything. No no one, the smartest person you know is not an expert on all these things. So they have relative strengths and weaknesses. And as cybersecurity and the results of a lack thereof became more of a public policy, national security, um, public safety issue, they have become more informed and literate. There's been a number of fantastic developments. When I first started doing Hill briefings about nine years ago, there were two, I repeat, two Hill staffers with a computer science degree. That is significantly better now. Uh, there was no cyber caucus in the House like Langevin co-sponsored or like um, in the Senate like uh, Warner co-founded. Uh, co so now there are caucuses for cybersecurity issues. Uh, we didn't have CISA. We do now. We didn't have... Uh, um, Cyberspace Solarium Commission. So I believe um, as they have leaned in and found good faith partners, they have increased their literacy and they know what they know and they know what they don't know. And it used to be they could only ask private sector big businesses. And now they're able to ask you know, more academia, more civil society, more um, civically minded groups. So um, I think it is getting better all the time, as evidenced by, you know, Chris Ingley's, you know, spending a half day with a bunch of hackers voluntarily and writing down everything that we said. And, and you're seeing some of those comments reflected in public policy now. You know, In IoT and OT, we often talk about adding connectivity to legacy devices. I wonder if Josh had any similar thoughts from his experience in the last 20 years or so in seeing the same sort of thing where we shoehorn in protocols that weren't necessarily designed for the devices that we're currently connecting them to. Yeah. Um... There's lots of conversations that come to mind. The The initial one is when I launched the Cavalry on August 1st, almost 10 years ago, the problem statement I used was our dependence on connected technology is growing faster than our ability to secure it in areas affecting public safety, human life, economic and national security. So that comes to mind is that I was trying to say there's a cost to connectivity. With great connectivity comes great responsibility. And we have not figured that out. We, we see the immediate and obvious benefit. So that's why we adopt it. We have, we're really bad at estimating and tracking the delayed 
and less obvious costs. So it's always a cost benefit, just like asbestos. I've sometimes referred to IoT as like cyber asbestos. Underwriters Laboratories pushed asbestos. It was a miracle. It was lightweight, fire retardant, flexible. We put it everywhere on purpose for fire safety. We didn't know until much later it helped contribute to cancer and mesothelioma and other problems. So we stopped using it, but we adopted it for a reason in good faith for benefits. We just didn't realize the cost benefit equation was wrong. Same thing with thalidomide or other things. Agent Orange was not always a weapon. Like there are, this is something we repeat in the human condition. The other one that comes to mind is probably pithier. Dr. Kevin Fu, who you've probably spoken with. Um, when I first told him I was going to start eyeing the cavalry, he was one of the few hackers that had actually demonstrated hacking of a medical device. And he said, Josh, it's like the, I'm like, why do they put Bluetooth on this stuff? What's wrong with them? He said, it's like bacon. He's like, everything's better with bacon. Everything's better with Bluetooth. And, and it's just somehow somebody thought it would be a cool idea to take something that could kill you and give it a remote attack surface. And it's one thing when it's a few feet away, but we are now, you know, you can reach out and kill someone from across the planet. And I think the way I always put this, because I was a, I mentored myself to Dan Gear, so I sometimes talk like him. Is I use, I often say like we are over dependent on uh, undependable things, and when that's the case, that mismatch between level of dependence and dependability, then you have really two choices: you can either depend upon it less or make it more dependable. And it is really hard. It's taken me nine years to help push this patch act into law. So we our our introduction of risk is much faster than our reduction of risk. And uh, that's not sustainable. Um, but you can also in parallel, be smarter about where that dependence is placed. So when the consequences of failure are not tolerable, we can disconnect some of these things. One of the challenges with living with more connectivity is that you need that expertise to realize, oh, hey, wait a minute. Maybe there's an old school method that we should learn as well. You know, just in case our gadgets start to betray us. And you have seen this school of thought emerging slowly, but not fast enough, in my opinion. For example, the Navy has about five, six years ago reintroduced or got more public about these reintroduced teaching sailors to use sextants for celestial navigation in case their systems fail. Analog backups. Um, when we do these CyberMed Summit clinical simulations and in ransom simulations, a very stunning uh, white knuckled, uh, terrifying moment for a hospital leadership is one of the first things they do is say, let's fail over to paper records. And at our very first cyber summit in Arizona, the, the head of the hospital said, let's fail over to paper records. And his deputy said, sir, we can't do that. And he said, what are you talking about? We can't do that. Go fail over. We do. We send all these records. I've seen them. We pay a lot of money for these paper records. He's like, I know we have them, sir, but we can't do that. And then finally, the guy was getting indignant. I think he even swore and said, Get the friggin' paper records. Like I've testified to Congress. This is part of our disaster recovery plan. Get them. And he said, sir, we have them. Our med students have never seen one before. We stopped training them seven years ago. So this notion of like, we've just become so dependent on the electronic flow that, and the way we do things now, we are forgetting how to do our jobs um, any other way. So I think the current state of oh, extreme overdependence. Um, is going to retreat a little on high consequence failure areas, um, whether it's segmentation, isolation, or merely disconnecting things that are too important to fail. Especially, as I said earlier, we've seen successful cyber attacks of the water you drink, the food you put on our table, oil and gas, electricity, and timely access to patient care. 
um, we've got to be smarter about our proportional risk to proportional trustworthiness. The White House is helping with things like Executive Order 14028, with the National Cybersecurity Strategy, with this more muscular posture, but it'll take a while. All of this brings us to the Patch Act. Basically, all medical devices have to go through FDA clearance in the United States. This testing is good in that it ensures that the devices that interact with our healthcare system are secure and reliable. You wouldn't want something to fail during a treatment. So, it was really up to people in the IM Calvary and others to propose to Washington, D.C. the changes that became known as the Patch Act. Um, we could spend five hours on it. We're not going to today. Um, for me, it was, it's, it was almost exactly a nine-year journey. I did the math. It was two weeks shy of nine years from the first time I pitched some of those concepts in my very first Hill briefings. I know exactly to which committees as well. Um, but you know, it, it, it was a team effort. There's a lot of people in the government uh, that helped make this happen. But essentially, um, if you go back pretty far, I started promoting that there's like a couple things that when you add software and connectivity things, you make them exposed to accidents and adversaries. And uh, with increasingly connected medicine, we should take at least initial minimum due care to have minimum cyber hygiene for medical technologies. About a year after that, I started building a deep trust relationship with the Food and Drug Administration. So, so did several of our members. We attracted a lot of patients, a lot of hospital employees, a lot of medical device researchers, and we we did like peace summits. We tried to say let's let's meet with the FDA, not as an adversary, but let's be a, a helping hand instead of a pointing finger. Let's focus on future success instead of past failure. Let's learn their jargon and lexicon. Let's have them learn ours. But like this is a trust relationship, and we did a series of summits and. Everyone got off their chest what they want, need, and fear, and and we listened as well. And eventually, we got to a, a basis of trust where light bulbs started going off. And they said, oh, my goodness, we're making it really, really hard for you to keep the world safe, aren't we? And we said, yes, yes, you are. So uh, that trust blossomed with Dr. Suzanne Schwartz and her amazing team. And uh, we had written something called the Hippocratic Oath for Connected Medical Devices. It basically said all systems fail. Right. We have this myth that technology is somehow perfect. Yet technology and gadgets, well, they can betray us and even fail. When it's life critical, well, that's not really an option. So you better have some options available for that inevitability. Here's five things we need to do to be prepared for failure. Uh, how do you avoid failure? How do you take help avoiding failure with the su without suing the helper? How do you capture, study, and learn from failure? How do you uh, fail safely or contain and isolate failure? And how do you inoculate against future failure? So we used very medical-like language and we said, just like doctors and nurses already care about a symbolic oath to do no harm, um, they already care about public safety. Increasingly, technology plays a vital role in support of that goal and it too should support your intent. So those five things had a, an, an entire um, set of pros behind them, but it was basically safety and security by design. Do you have coordinated vulnerability disclosure programs? to uh, avail yourself of help from all willing allies without fear of legal reprisal? Do you have tamper evident, forensically sound evidence capture so you can prove if you were or won't act? Uh, uh, do you have um, segmentation, isolation of critical systems from non-critical systems so that even if you're hacked, you can still perform your clinical duty safely? And do you have the ability to be patched and updated or inoculated against future failure? And almost no medical devices did. But that trust and the well-earned trust and the patient, we were patiently impatient. Um, Suzanne shifted her focus from saying, you know what, um, our prior standard of care for a recall 
was proof of harm. We had to have adverse outcomes and evidence that it was directly linked to hacking. And then after a few of those, we could maybe take corrective action. But through our cross-training, she realized an unmitigated pathway to harm should be sufficient to trigger corrective action in cyberspace. And she took a pretty bold step and did the first ever safety communication or recall with the Hospire bedside infusion pumps that we could demonstrate could empty a three-hour dose in 30 seconds, Mm -hmm. which could be fatal. And that sent a warning to all the medical device makers of, okay, we don't have many more years. We're on a clock now. We better get our act together. And she took that Hippocratic Oath, if you squint and turn it into the pre-market guidance and for some of it, turn some of the rest of it into the post-market guidance. So the pre-market is what you have to do to bring a device to market. And post-market is how they govern regulations and surveillance for safety over time. But again, those are just guidance. That's where someone like Josh comes into play. He understands Washington. He understands laws. So you asked the question about how do you get to the Patch Act? Um, they don't have the binding weight of law. It's just the most recent interpretation. People can quibble. Uh, they still claimed, even to this day, that you're not allowed to patch. The FDA won't let us patch. You were always allowed to patch. So the Patch Act tried to codify in statute. Uh, and the benefit of codifying in the statute um, certain minimum cyber hygiene requirements is that uh, now it's not negotiable. Um, they mean it. And they can enforce more stringent minimum safety rules, like just like unsafe at any speed added minimum seatbelt laws for cars and things like that. And you can also budget against statute. So you, you can't budget against guidance. So she can now get budget appropriations to better and, and, and more quickly enforce these statutory minimums. But the road to how do you get there, the, um, This, believe it or not, this is the very short version is during the pandemic, um, we saw that this is not a patient privacy issue anymore. It's not merely patient data. It's PHI and HIPAA are all, and all the fines from OCR, or the Office of Civil Rights. These are not about resilient, safe delivery of patient care. These are about maintaining the privacy and confidentiality of patient records. During the worldwide pandemic, Josh worked for CISA. He had access to vast amounts of data on healthcare. And what he saw, it was sobering. What we learned the hard way during the pandemic, especially, is that um, the unavailability of medical technology can affect patient outcomes. Delayed integrated care worsens outcomes and can even contribute to excess deaths and um, excess morbidity and mortality, depending on the condition. So from our work uh, in the cavalry, from our work on the Congressional Task Force, from work at the Atlantic Council, we learned things like even a 4.4 minute delay in an ambulance ride during a U.S. marathon can have a statistically significant mortality rate for heart attacks 30 days later. Even one hour, three hours, four hours can have the difference between life and death for strokes, uh, the time-sensitive delivery. So if 4.4 minutes can affect mortality rates for heart and four hours is the difference between life and death in cases for stroke, what did four weeks of downtime do during the pandemic in October 2020 in Vermont with a month-long downtime? for a very large geographic area. So we knew that this degraded and delayed access to care could lead to loss of life. And during my time with my data science and risk management teams at CISA, we did the first statistical analysis to prove correlation of uh, hospital strains to excess deaths, knowing minimum, maximum, most likely. So in the wake of all that, as the pandemic, um, as the committee's jurisdiction looked at why is there record high ransoms on hospitals? Why are some of them a month or longer in duration across multiple state lines? This is becoming a patient safety issue. 
And on October 1st of 2021, there were really two seminal publications. One was the front page of the Wall Street Journal, talked of a 2019 baby who lost their life in an Alabama hospital after a complicated birth, but who had been ransomed prior to admission. And uh, that court case continues, but it was the first named victim associated with a ransomware attack. And on that very same day, my team published its data science to show the first statistical proof that ransoms constrain a hospital sufficient to drive excess deaths in quantifiable ways based on data science we published in November, a month and a half later, through the CDC Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. So Congress noticed both of these, and in May of last year, 2022, there was a, a Senate hearing through Senate Help, Healthcare, Education, Labor, and Pensions on the effects of cybersecurity on healthcare. And in that, we covered the first proof of loss of life and were asked some fairly detailed and excellent questions from the committee members as they were evaluating, should we finally patch an unpopular piece of legislation that the medical device makers are lobbying pretty hard against? So it had already passed the House in recognition of this is a public safety human life issue now. Um, it was now being discussed in the Senate and that hearing solidified political will to say no to industry and they passed it. And the omnibus package, which was pretty low odds in the, the House of, in the appropriations bill at the end of the congressional session. But, uh, the senator from Louisiana, a physician himself, fought pretty darn hard with his conviction and political will that this is a public safety issue now. And private sector may not like it, but it's time. We have a job to do. You've now seen that political will echoed in this new Congress through Senator Warner as a discussion draft called Cyber Safety. Excuse me, Cybersecurity is Patient Safety. Pulling no punches in the title, Cybersecurity is Patient Safety. And Robin Kelly of Illinois in the House has um, been socializing proposed language, both of whom are focused on significant comprehensive healthcare reforms and minimum cyber hygiene, even for hospitals, large, medium, small, and rural with federal stimulus, carrots and sticks to help those medium, small, and rurals meet those minimums. So they both want to raise the bar for what counts to qualify for say Medicare or Medicaid, but then also provide assistance for hospitals under a certain size, right? HDOs, health delivery organizations under a certain size and financial means the target rich, but cyber poor that I referred to earlier. So this political will is continuing. And if you weren't already impressed with bipartisan support and bicameral support across House and Senate, the White House National Cybersecurity Strategy has pulled no punches either, stating in their pillar three that um, free market forces only take you so far. And we're at the limits of voluntary only, and they will use the power of the government, a light touch, but no lighter than is required um, to maintain the trust of the public on issues like water and wastewater, electricity, fuel, food supply, uh, timely access to patient care. So they are taking a much more muscular public approach to the public-private partnership, which has usually been fairly non-regulatory and deferential. They've even put carrots and sticks on the table, such as the, the concept finally from the White House of software liability, maybe holding suppliers accountable for their part in avoiding elective risk that they pass downstream to the owners and operators of hospitals or water and wastewater or chemical production, et cetera. So um, this political will, I look at the Patch Act as the canary in the coal mine, the first proof that the, the government will say no to the desire of the private sector to self-regulate when we have seen such elevated consequences of harm. You know, there's a larger volume and variety of attackers uh, hitting us more frequently with more pronounced impact. This is no longer about how many records you lost or how big your fine is, but maybe 
um, diverted delayed in grade patient care and even excess mortality rates. Um, so we're in a new place and that requires much more muscular balance of public sector versus private sector. Segmentation, either logical or physical, is when a device and service is separate from each other. It is considered a good security practice. And years ago, you would have a surgical theater separated from the cafeteria or the pharmacy. That made sense. Then we got to the world of Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and NFC. And suddenly, the HDO networks, they were flat. Josh has another idea on why we see flat hospital networks today. I have an angle I, I share on this. Uh, some people may disagree, but um, it is very rare to find segment, uh, if any, if uh, segmentation in hospitals now, um, even in places where it used to exist. And um, there's probably a few reasons for that, but the one I cited during our credential task force that we published in May of 2017 was um, this was an accident. Uh, triggered by meaningful use, if you remember the term meaningful use. So the HIPAA and the High Tech Act tied reimbursement for medical technologies to the ability to receive and transmit electronic health records. So many devices that were never designed or threat modeled be, to be connected to anything were now financially incentivized to slap connectivity on in a hurry to qualify for reimbursement. Uh, and in this race to be qualified for meaningful use reimbursement, um, it led to flat unsegmented networks because interoperability was so brittle. And what that meant was what used to be that a ransom on a single device might hurt that device, that wing, that floor, but that was it now could affect the entire hospital, maybe even your affiliate hospitals. So um, these flat unsegmented networks are reachable by each other and often the outside world. So part of this was an unintentional consequence of the meaningful use financial incentive. Um, and part of it as well was um, how electronic medical record systems have become uh, really billing systems and accounting systems that necessitate connectivity and bridging across plural departments. Um, so even when people attempt to do good segmentation isolation, uh, there are often limits based on the chosen integrations and sticky integrations of some of these big players that do electronic medical record systems. So, um, you know, in our install base and our customer base, we do assist with the identification and, and uh, application of segmentation and isolation where possible, but it is often building around prior sins for meaningful use and or the flow of medical records and billing systems and approvals. Josh has an example where a non-diagnostic tool, seemingly not part of the healthcare environment, is nonetheless critical. Uh, you may recall during NotPetya, in fact, this, this anecdote made the book written about NotPetya from uh, Andy Greenberg called Sandworm. One of the most pronounced impacts on U.S. hospitals was not medical devices at all. It was Nuance software, a voice-to-text dictation system that bought Dragon Naturally Speaking. So one of the dominant major players in this space were affected by the NotPetya attack and as such had a cloud outage. So the voice to text dictation could not continue, but also the, depending on the hospital's implementation of that with their EMRs, they could not access records and approvals for surgical clearances. And there's a harrowing story in Sandworm about two little kids 
that almost didn't get time sensitive surgery because they couldn't access the records proving their fitness to have surgery. So um, it's when we are over dependent on undependable things that are connected to everything else, even a voice to text dictation can imperil the lives of its patients from its unavailability. So um, I would love to see much more segmentation and isolation uh, and have sy uh, systems in a hospital only speak to the things on a need to know basis. Um, the sad truth is for 85% of the, the hospitals in the country, we don't even have a security person to attempt uh, segmentation isolation. And for the rest, they have a more challenging time between their EMR implementations and their um, uh, legacy equipment that is too fragile uh, to, uh, to just start adding lots of segmentation willy-nilly. I'm wondering if the Patch Act recognizes and addresses some of the issues faced in legacy systems. Uh, the Patch Act is necessary but insufficient for this overall question you're asking. Um, what the Patch Act will do is it's expecting more modern, defensible safety and security by design. Uh, so these things, it is expecting threat models to be provided. It's expecting um, a coordinated vulnerability disclosure program. It's expecting a, a machine-generated software bill of materials. So by virtue of raising the bar on the hygiene of net new devices brought to market, in theory, they will be less brittle and more thoughtfully designed than the ones that had tech, uh, connectivity slapped on them at the last second. Um, but uh, ultimately, there's more to do. And a, a huge thrust of the Warner discussion paper called Cybersecurity is Patient Safety looks at the expectations for minimum cyber hygiene within the hospital. While the US FDA has full jurisdiction over bringing medical devices to market it has zero jurisdiction over hospitals and their clinical operations. So while an FDA may ca cause a recall, um, the FDA can't stop a hospital from using recalled medical devices. And you would be stunned at the percentage of recalled medical devices continued to be used in clinical environments years and years and years beyond their safe usage. This would never fly in any other profession, but is kind of been the baked in norm thus far. So I think these more HDO focused regulations from both Warner and his um, Republican co-sponsors and Robin Kelly and her Republican co-sponsors um, and these bipartisan bicameral you know, consensus positions are that CMS, for example, uh, within HHS has to finally define minimum cyber hygiene for hospitals and HDOs. And then they also want to provide you know, financial carrots and sticks to help get us from current state to desired state, even for the smallest of us, like those small, medium and rural. Um, so an example for everybody would be in my four or five C congressional task force, we asked for a cash for clunkers pilot, just like we did with cars. Can you take our most dangerous legacy technologies that imperil patient care and maybe offer a one-time stimulus buyback to have them replaced with more modern defensible, resilient things. Think like bedside infusion pumps, which are quite prolif uh, proliferated and quite dangerous if unsafe. Um, and then similarly, as I said before, maybe grant programs for small, medium, and rural under a certain bed count to help, to help meet these. This includes monies for talent pool expansion and leverage because many of the hospitals can't find or retain qualified security talent, even if they wanted them. So there's a, I think the most comprehensive paper is the Warner, the Warner one. Um, I think um, Robin Kelly goes much more specifically and deeply at small, medium, rural hospitals and helping them. 
And he goes more at what can we do for medical device makers? What can we do for the government getting more organized? What can we do for the legacy problem? And what can we do for um, assisting victims between well, between now and we get to desired state? So if we have a current state that's prone and a desired state that's more defensible, resilient, maintainable, are there response and recovery methods in the last chapter of their paper uh, to assist victims more readily, like a bonus surplus of medical equipment if yours is down or rapid response regionally if you're a victim of a crime. So there's a, a much more comprehensive look from Warner and we expect more than one piece of legislation to come out of that uh, request for comments. At the top of the show, I mentioned Windows 7 being used. Is it still being used? Yeah, not only do we see Windows 7, which is end of life, and Windows XP, which is end of life before Windows 7 was end of life, prominently featured in hospitals. Um, there are, we just had a webinar with three CISOs in the last two weeks, and one of which just bought from a top medical device manufacturer that is still shipping Windows 7. Like they're brand new devices are on Windows 7, and I've seen some older than that, but the anecdote in public, and one of them uh, was responding to something I wrote at CISA called CISA.gov bad practices, CISA.gov slash bad practices, not best practices, but bad practices. There are three. And one of them as the nation's risk management advisor for critical infrastructure, uh, risk advisor and reducer, I put a line in the sand when I was trying to protect vaccine supply chains. And I said, when someone's target rich, but cyber poor, they can't just do best practices and just do the NIST cybersecurity framework and just do zero trust. It's like Marie Antoinette saying, if there's no more red, let them eat cake. Um, one of the most, one of the weakest links in the vaccine supply chain was the sole manufacturer on earth for something three different vaccine candidates needed. When we finally found that one organization to contact, they had three IT people, zero security people, most of their IT was naked on Shodan, discoverable and accessible from the naked internet, often with hard-coded default passwords and unsupported operating systems. You could sneeze on them and we would have had a lot more dead people. So I helped drive the system. I got bad practices. And from memory, I'll read one to you from my memory. Uh, the use of end-of-life unsupported operating systems in service of critical infrastructure and national critical functions is dangerous and materially elevates risk to national security, economic security, public health and safety. This dangerous practice is especially egregious for internet reachable technologies. So when hospitals saw that and it's two, two uh, companions, they said, hey, we have 7,500 devices of this type that have an unsupported end of life operating system and the end of life software should not lead to end of life for patients. So they went to their vent manufacturer and said, we may lose our insurance. We might be considered negligent if we continue to operate these. Can you give us a patch to upgrade to a supported operating system? Our maintenance is current. We're paying you for maintenance. We need to have a supported operating system. And they tried to charge him $75,000 per device to upgrade to a modern operating system. So to answer your question succinctly, uh, Yes, there are brand new devices shipping with end-of-life unsupported operating systems, which um, reduce the likelihood of being patched in a timely manner when there's an active exploitation. And um, the Patch Act should help to drive that aberrant and reckless behavior out of existence um, as soon as possible. But there is a long tail to the operational deployment for the devices you've already purchased, a very long tail. Um, 
we this is a summary across a, a large spread of the device types. But when I was on the congressional task force, we saw it would take about seven years to go from idea of a device through for initial R and D development and pre market approval to bring one to market. And then it would tend to stay on the market for about 15 years post-purchase. So you had about a 21-year lifespan, whereas the time to live for the support of the operating system was significantly shorter. And you were often end of life before you even made it to market. So we argued for reference architectures that decouple and loosely couple the body and the soul, right? The durable goods can last a long time but you design yourself to be modular enough to have plural operating systems across the lifespan of your clinical deployment. And uh, so the Patch Act is a significant uh, bolus of goodness going into the new devices. And the great news is um, the authorities applied to 510K, which are updates and refreshes to previous devices and also to their post-market surveillance and even their prohibited act status. So they can apply these retroactively to devices which fail to meet um, the hygiene that we have come to believe is necessary for safe clinical operations. So it is, it's going to be a pretty fascinating matriculation as these rules kick in. I've heard the device manufacturers say it's so hard to get FDA approval that they don't want to touch the system once it's approved. Is that often the reason why manufacturers are stuck using Windows 7? I've heard the same thing, and some of that is self-inflicted. Um, there's a few things at play. We could do the master class or the simple version. I think you'll want the simple version. Um, if you're going to put something that has software and connectivity on it, you need to keep pace with the pace of the adversaries and the pace of the revelation of net new vulnerabilities. So for a long time, people sincerely but falsely believed that the FDA would not let you patch. That's never true. Um, in fact, not only can you patch, um, they started making it clear in the post-market guidance when we published the Hippocratic Oath that if you don't patch in a timely manner, they may recall you or give you safety communications, which can lead to recalls. So um, they did a myth-busting document and said, um, any patch that merely fixes a flaw that uh, does not alter your quote intended use um, is both allowed and expected. Uh, in fact, a failure to patch it may threaten your ability to deliver your intended use. So what is intended use for 30 seconds? Intended use is when you do a pre-market submission, you have to state what the device is meant to do. So a scalpel is meant to cut. Um, the things that alter your intended use um, require significantly more paperwork and a process and evaluation. But merely maintaining the resilient performance of your intended use is both allowed and necessary. In fact, there was a, I'm going to paraphrase the phrasing in the post-market, but it said, if you have a coordinated vulnerability disclosure program and you can mitigate your issue in 30 days or remediate it in 60 days, then we won't need to be involved. We'll consider it a controlled vulnerability. This seems reasonable. When a vendor hears about a vulnerability for the first time, a zero day, it takes that vendor a certain amount of time to understand the vulnerability and then fix it. The software industry has circled around 90 days as a reasonable amount of time for that activity. So the alternative is if you don't do that, we will take a regulatory post-market action uh, in the form of something like a, a safety communication. So the failure to patch will trigger regulatory action if it's longer than 30, 60 days. Um, so that has been cleared up. And now in the Patch Act, it's pretty darn clear that you have to do this. Good. However, there has been wiggle room in the past in the form of internal quality control. It's possible that for 
quality purposes, you can't just update the device. Now the Patch Act makes it clear that vendors will have to find a way. Most of these medical device makers have have a separate quality program that they self-describe and they are held to their self-described program. So sometimes the FDA can be telling you on a cyber lens, you must patch. And the quality program says, we can't change these things. It violates our quality. Um, and they try to freeze them in carbonite. But you cannot have that mismatch of unchanging software that's vulnerable in the face of manifest attack surface and attack density with harm and de demonstrated harm. So those quality programs that are self-imposed by some device manufacturers um, need to be reconciled with the dynamic and volatile nature of hyper-connected medical technologies. And at least in the pre-market guidance draft that predated the Patch Act and now the Patch Act itself, it's becoming clear that you can't just hide behind your quality process. Um, we have post-market surveillance to do for the resilience and safety and security of your clinical medical devices. So um, I am not the regulator. I should not be considered uh, authoritative for how the regulators are doing these, but um, we are running out of places to hide. So if your quality processes and your software development lifecycle prohibit you from updating, you're going to have a hard time going forward. In the United States, well, we've seen this before. And I sometimes liken this to 9-11. Um, when we realized that hijackers could easily get on planes and turn them into missiles, we couldn't just snap our fingers and get rid of all the commercial airline fleet. And we did a lot of stupid things in response to those attacks. But one of the smartest things we did is we added steel reinforced cockpit doors. So maybe we're in a world where, you know, they can get on the plane, but it's much harder for them to get into the cockpit. So I foresee in hospitals for the foreseeable future, despite this political will, and despite the stimulus, we will see 700 plus ransoms a year or more of our nation's hospitals. The question is, can we put steel reinforced cockpit doors around at least the time sensitive delivery of care for the systems involved in heart and brain and pulmonary, where minutes, hours, or days are the difference between life and death? And especially for rurally isolated hospitals where the next nearest hospital is more than two, three, four, or five hours away, where those delays will affect patient outcomes. We should put disproportionate focus on the resilience of those isolated hospitals who lack alternative proximal care. And I don't like to tell you that this is the state we're in, but having helped protect the nation's hospitals every single day for the pandemic, and since then watching these financially strained hospitals, we are prone, we are prey. The predators have taken notice and become much more aggressive, and we will be part of a feeding frenzy for many years to come. I'm hoping we can be surgical and smart about applying resilience to the most time-sensitive, latency-sensitive patient outcome services while we get from where we are to where we need to be. Some of that will be hardening and adding security. Some of that will be depending less on undependable things. It's going to be a mix. Given his experience, does Josh feel the environment in Washington is better or worse for passing additional tech legislation, legislation that speaks to the infrastructure InfoSec community's overall concerns. Generally speaking, the public-private partnership has usually meant the private sector would like not to be regulated, and the public sector says, okay. Um, and these hospitals who are under record high financial strains don't want to be spending more money on regulated mandatory minimums. So there's a bunch of cognitive dissonance I'm encountering across even good faith, heroic uh, cybersecurity teams and hospitals where they they know we need to do better, 
but they're also overwhelmed and exhausted and underfunded. So I'm encouraging people to, to search their souls a bit and fight through their cognitive dissonance here because yes, we are at record high financial strains and we are at record high levels of political will. So there's a willingness to act and regulate right now, whether it's a good timing or not. Yes, um, we have best practices that we've honed for years and those best practices were really harmonizing for patient healthcare confidentiality, for data confidentiality, not for patient safety. Yes, we have those best practices. And that was before we saw these elevated consequences to public safety, human life. Uh, and yes, we, we believe we've been doing the best we can. And uh, we now know we're not. As I said, in solving the medical device dilemma, we might seem to be doing a lot of things now, but only a few are really necessary and effective. And this needs to be revisited time and time again. This is really a sobering perspective. There's really two camps that are emerging right now on the healthcare, cybersecurity, and cyber resilience debate. There are those who are convinced we are doing the best we can, and there are those who know we are not. In the latter camp is bipartisan support in the House and the Senate and the White House and us. <laughs> um, so you were right, but you were early. You weren't listened to, but the stakes have gotten higher. And when your board comes and asks, how can we be sure that we can still have continued access to Medicare and Medicaid? And what's this regulation that's coming? We have a very short window to write our minds and write our hearts and dig deep and find our second and third and fourth wind and speak in the language of the business to make sure we don't miss this opportunity. So there will be regulation coming. It'll be with our participation or without it. It'll be informed and literate or not. Uh, and no one wants this, but it's here. And I'm asking people to ready themselves to help get us from the current state to a better state. I'd like to thank Josh Corman for talking about his incredible career so far, and in particular, the accomplishments he's achieved in the medical device security. As Josh said, legislators in Washington have to be experts on the environment, on social programs, and all things cybersecurity. Well, of course, they can't. Just as industries have powerful lobbies at work to affect their legislation, hackers, too, can volunteer and help steer the legislation in more nuanced ways. And if you'd like to volunteer, or if you'd just like to learn more, I strongly suggest you look at IamTheCavalry.org for more information. Hey, if you're enjoying Error Code, tell a friend. I'm sure there are other people out there who like narrative information security podcasts. And I'd really like to hear from you. DM me at robertvomosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon and tell me what you like and even what you don't. I have new shows coming up, including one that will take you behind the scenes on the Hackasat 4 mission and the upcoming game at DEF CON 31, where they'll be hacking a real satellite in orbit. Subscribe today. I don't want you to miss out.